Part the Second, Chapter Five of Dick Sands, the Boy Captain. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alex C. Talander, Davis, California. Dick Sands, the Boy Captain, by Jules Verne, translated by Ellen E. Frewer. Part the Second, Chapter Five, White Ants. The storm had now burst in full fury, and fortunate it was that a refuge had been found. The rain did not fall in separate drops as in temperate zones, but descended like the waters of a cataract, in one solid and compact mass, in a way that could only suggest the outpour of some vast aerial basin containing the waters of an entire ocean. Contrary, too, to the storms of higher latitudes, of which the duration seemed ordinarily to be in inverse ratio to their violence, these African tempests, whatever their magnitude, often last for whole days, furrowing the soil into deep ravines, changing plains to lakes and brooks to torrents, and causing rivers to overflow and cover vast districts with their inundations. It is hard to understand whence such volumes of vapor and electric fluid can accumulate. The earth, upon these occasions, might also seem to be carried back to the remote period, which has been called the Diluvian Age. Happily, the walls of the ant hill were very thick. No beaver hut formed of pounded earth could be more perfectly watertight and a torrent might have passed over it without a particle of moisture making its way through its substance. As soon as the party had taken possession of the tenement, a lantern was lighted, and they proceeded to examine the interior. The cone, which was about twelve feet high inside, was eleven feet wide at the base, gradually narrowing to a sugar-loaf top. The walls and partitions between the tiers of sails were no way less than a foot thick throughout. These wonderful erections, the result of the combined labor of innumerable insects, are by no means uncommon in the heart of Africa. Smeathman, a Dutch traveller of the last century, has recorded how he and four companions, all at one time, occupied the summit of one of them in Luunde. Livingston noticed some made of red clay, of which the height varied from fifteen to twenty feet, and in Yangwe, Cameron several times mistook one of these colonies for a native camp pitched upon the plain. He describes some of these strange edifices as being flanked with small spires, giving them the appearance of a cathedral dome. The reddish clay of which the ant hill was composed could leave no doubt upon the mind of a naturalist that it had been formed by the species known as termes belliscosus. Had it been made of grey or blank alluvial soil, it might have been attributed to the termes mordax, or termes atrox, formidable names that must awaken anything but pleasure in the minds of all but enthusiast entomologists. In the centre was an open space, surrounded by roomy compartments, ranged one upon another, like the berths of a ship cabin on line with the millions of cells that had been occupied by the ants. This central space was inadequate to hold the whole party that had now made their hurried resort to it. But as each of the compartments was sufficiently capacious to admit one person to occupy it in a sitting posture, Mrs. Weldon, Jack, Nan, and Cousin Benedict were exalted to the upper tier. Austin, Bat, and Actaeon occupied the next story, whilst Tom and Hercules and Dick Sands himself remained below. Dick soon found that the soil beneath his feet was beginning to get damp, and insisted upon having some of the dry clay spread over it from the base of the cone. It is a long time, he said, since we have slept with a roof over our heads, and I am anxious to make our refuge as secure as possible. It may be that we shall have to stay here for a whole day or more. On the first opportunity I shall go and explore. It may turn out that we are near the stream we are seeking, and perhaps we shall have to build a raft before we start again. Under his direction, therefore, Hercules took his hatchet, and proceeded to break down the lowest range of cells, and to spread the dry, brittle clay, of which they were composed a good foot thick over the damp floor, taking care not in any way to block up the aperture by which the fresh air penetrated into the interior. 
It was indeed fortunate that the termites had abandoned their home. Had it swarmed with its multitudes of voracious neuroptera, the anthill would have been utterly untenable for human beings. Cousin Benedict's curiosity was awakened, and he was intensely interested in the question of the evacuation, so that he proceeded at once to investigate, if he could, whether the emigration had been recent or otherwise. He took the lantern, and as the result of his scrutiny he soon discovered in a recess what he described as the termite storehouse, or the place where the indefatigable insects kept their provisions. It was a large cavity, not far from the royal cell, which, together with the cells for the reception of the young larvae, had been destroyed by Hercules in the course of his flooring operations. Out of this receptacle, Benedict drew a considerable quantity of gum and vegetable juices, all in a state so liquid as to demonstrate that they had been deposited there quite recently. "'They have only just gone,' he exclaimed, with an air of authority, as if he had imagined that someone was about to challenge his assertion. "'We are not going to dispute your word, Mr. Benedict,' said Dick. "'Here we are. We have taken their place, and shall be quite content for them to keep out of the way, without caring when they went or where they have gone.' "'But we must care,' retorted Benedict testily. Why they have gone concerns us a good deal. These juices make it evident, from the liquid state in which we find them, that the ants were here this morning. They have not only gone, but they have carried off their young larvae with them. They have been sagacious enough to take warning of some impeding danger. Perhaps they heard that we were coming, said Hercules, laughing. A look of withering scorn was the only answer that the entomologist deigned to give. Yes, I say, repeated Hercules, perhaps they heard that we were coming. Pshaw, said Benedict contemptuously. Do you imagine that they would be afraid of you? They would reduce your carcass to a skeleton in no time if they found it across their path. No doubt, if I were dead, replied Hercules, they could pick my bones pretty clean, but while I had these in my limbs, I think I could crush them by thousands. Thousands? ejaculated Benedict, with increasing warmth. You think you could demolish thousands? But what if there were hundreds of thousands, millions, hundreds of millions? Alive as much as dead, I tell you, they wouldn't be long in consuming every morsel of you. During this brisk little discussion, Dick Sands had been pondering over what Benedict had said. There was no doubt that the amateur elatrius was well acquainted with the habits of white ants, and if, as he affirmed, the insects had instinctively quitted their abode on account of some approaching danger, Dick asked himself whether it was safe or prudent for this party to remain. But the fury of the storm was still so great that all possibility of removing from the shelter seemed precluded for the present, and without inquiring further into the mystery, he merely said, "'Although the ants, Mr. Benedict, have left us their provisions, we must not forget that we have brought our own.' We will have our supper now, and tomorrow, when the storm is over, we will see what is to be done. Fatigue had not taken away the appetite of the energetic travellers, and they gladly set about the preparation of their meal. The provisions, of which they had enough for another two days, had not been injured by the rain. For some minutes the crunching of hard biscuit was the only sound to be heard. Hercules, in particular, seemed to pound away with huge jaws as with a pair of millstones. Mrs. Bottom was the only one of the party who ate little, and that little was only taken at Dick's earnest solicitation. He could not help noticing with much concern that although Jack seemed to be satisfactorily recovering, and without sign of fever, was sleeping calmly enough on a bed made up of clothes spread out in one of the cells, yet his mother had lost much of her courage, and seemed preoccupied and depressed. Cousin Benedict did due honour to the simple evening repast not on account of its quantity or quality, but because it gave him an opportunity of holding forth upon the subject of termites. He was much vexed that he had been unable to discover a single specimen in the deserted anthill with which he might illustrate his lecture. But notwithstanding this deficiency, he continued to talk, heedless whether anyone was listening. They are wonderful insects, he said. They belong to the order of the Neuroptera, which have the antennae longer than the head. Their mandibles are well developed, and the inferior pair of wings is generally as large as the superior. There are five families of them, the Panopidae, 
the Myrmelonidae, the Hermerobidae, the Termitini, and the Perlidae. I need hardly say that what we are now occupying is the dwelling of the Termitine. At this point Dick became all attention. He was anxious to ascertain whether this discovery of white ants had aroused any suspicion in Benedict's mind that they must be on African soil. The naturalist, now fairly mounted on a favorite hobby, went on with his discourse. I am sorry not to have a specimen to show you, but these termitine have four joints in the tarsi, and strong horny mandibles. The family includes, as genera, the mantispa, the raphidia, and the termes, the last commonly known as white ants, amongst which are termes fatalis, termes lucifugans, termes mordax, and several other more or less rare. And which of them built this ant hill? inquired Dick. The Bellicosi, replied Benedict, pronouncing the name with as much pride as if he were eulogizing the Macedonians on some warlike nation of antiquity. Bellicosi, he continued, are to be found of every size. There is as much difference between the largest and the smallest of them as there is between Hercules and a dwarf. The workers are about one-fifth of an inch long. The soldiers or fighting ants are half an inch, whilst the males and females measure four-fifths of an inch. There is another curious species called Syrafus which are about half an inch long, and have pincers instead of mandibles, and heads larger than their bodies, like sharks. In fact, if sharks and syrafus were placed in competition, I should be inclined to back the sharks. And where are the syrafus most generally to be found? said Dick cautiously. In Africa, in the southern and central provinces. Africa may truly be termed the land of ants. Livingstone, in the notes brought home by Stanley, describes a battle which he was fortunate enough to witness between an army of black ants and an army of red. The black ants, or drivers, which are what the natives call syrafus, got the best of it, and the red ants, or tchungus, are, after a very resolute defense, were obliged to retire defeated, carrying their eggs and young ones with them. Livingston avows that he never saw the warlike instinct so strongly developed as in these syrafus. The stoutest man, the largest animal, a lion or an elephant, quails before the grip of their mandibles. No obstacle impedes their progress, no tree is too lofty for them to scale, and they are contrived to cross wide streams by forming their own bodies into a kind of suspension bridge. Equally amazing are their numbers. Dr. Chailu, another African traveller, relates how it took more than twelve hours for a column of ants to file past him, without a moment's pause in their march. These numbers, however, cease to be so surprising when it is explained that their fecundity is such that a single female of the termites, Bellicosi, has been estimated to produce as many as 60,000 eggs a day. These neuroptera furnish the natives with a favorite food, grilled ants being considered a great delicacy. "'Have you ever tasted them?' asked Hercules with a grin. "'Never,' answered the naturalist. "'But I am in hopes I shall have a chance of doing so very soon.' "'Surely you don't imagine yourself in Africa,' said Tom suddenly." "'Africa? No. Why should I?' replied Benedict. "'But, as I have already seen a tzatzi in America, I do not despair of having the satisfaction of discovering white ants there, too. You do not know the sensation I shall make in Europe when I publish my folio volume and its illustrations.' It was evident that no inkling of the truth had yet entered poor Benedict's brain, and it seemed likely that it would require a demonstration far more striking than any natural phenomena to undeceive the minds of such of the party as were not already in possession of the fatal secret.' Although it was nine o'clock, Cousin Benedict went on talking incessantly, regardless of the fact that one by one his audience were falling to sleep in their separate cells. Dick Sands did not sleep, but neither did he interrupt the entomologist by farther questions. Hercules kept up his attention longer than the rest, but at length he too succumbed to weariness, and his eyes and ears were closed to all external sights and sounds. 
but endurance has limits, and at last Cousin Benedict, having worn himself out, clambered up to the topmost cell of the cone, which he had chosen for his dormitory, and fell into a peaceful slumber. The lantern had already been extinguished. All was darkness and silence within, whilst the storm without still raged with a violence that gave no sign of abatement. Dick Sands himself was the only one of the party who was not partaking in the repose that was so indispensable to them all, but he could not sleep. His every thought was absorbed in the responsibility that rested on him to rescue those under his charge from the dangers that threatened them. Again and again he recalled every incident that had occurred since the loss of Captain Hull and his crew. He remembered the occasion when he had stood with his pistol pointed at Nagoro's head. Why, oh why, had his hand faltered then? Why had he not at that moment hurled the miserable wretch overboard, and thus relieved himself and its partners in trouble from the catastrophe that had since befallen them? Pero was still staring them in the face, and his sole drop of consolation in the bitter cup of despondency was that Mrs. Weldon was still ignorant of their real situation. At that moment, just in the fever of his agony, he felt a light breath upon his forehead. A hand was laid upon his shoulder, and a gentle voice murmured in his ear, "'My poor boy, I know everything. God will help us. He will be done.'" End of Part the Second Chapter Five Recording by Alex C. Talander Davis, California www.alexetalander.com